This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me on the line today is none other than the esteemed Professor Michael Hollick from Boston University. Now, Michael is the Professor of Medicine, Physiology and Biophysics, Director of the General Clinical Research Unit, Director of the Bone Healthcare Clinic, and Director of the Heliotherapy Light and Skin Research Centre at Boston University. And I've often said he's basically the Professor of of everything. Uh, But also, interestingly, uh, Professor Michael Hollick was recently listed by Thomas Reuters as one of the most influential minds of the last decade. And I'd like to welcome Michael Hollick once again to FX Radio. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Always a pleasure to chat with you, Michael. And I can chat with you for hours because I, I just get so caught up in what you've got to say. And we've got some very interesting topics to go through today. And the first one is a very interesting recent paper, uh, which is a meta-analysis of all-cause mortality according to serum vitamin D levels. Can you comment on that paper, please? Sure. This is uh, Cedric Garland, and he's been kind of the pioneer in uh, appreciating back in the 1980s that people who live at higher latitudes are more likely to develop uh, prostate, breast, and colon cancer Mm -hmm. and began to introduce the concept that vitamin D was really important for reducing risk for chronic diseases. But recently, as you're probably aware, that there have been a lot of controversy about how much vitamin D one should be taking because possibly if you increase your vitamin D intake, as the Institute of Medicine has suggested, that yes, it's true. If you're vitamin D deficient, you decrease risk for mortality. But if you now get to that magical number of about 75 to 80 nanomoles per liter for 25-hydroxyvitamin D, all of a sudden there was this little uptick in mortality, suggesting the possibility that, hey, wait a minute, you can't take too much because it's going to increase risk. So Cedric Garland went through a large number of papers and did a very careful uh, meta-analysis and found, just like the Institute of Medicine, that yes, that if you are vitamin D deficient, you're more likely to die, and that if you improve your vitamin D status, you reduce your risk for dying. And what he also found was that that slope continues to drop, that line continues to drop, not only when you get to 75 nanomoles per liter, but it's sustained out to about 250 nanomoles per liter. Uh-huh, that's, that's very interesting. Because it really can give us a level of comfort that improving people's vitamin D status is good for their overall health and well-being and reduces risk for mortality. Period. And this was backed up by another recent study or paper by um, Marshall, David Marshall um, and the group, um, looking at 4,000 IU per day for one-year results in uh, decrease, what's called positive cause, um, with repeat biopsy with prostate cancer. Correct. And um, there is also some additional evidence to suggest that Uh, if you do have prostate cancer and you do improve your vitamin D status, that uh, you may be able to improve uh, disease outcome as well. So this is very interesting that there appears to be no J-curve. Is that that what they're saying? Or is it that this J-curve is associated with other factors? Right. So at least from his study, demonstrated there was no J-curve. 
And as we've had the conversation before, um, and at a recent NIH conference that I attended in December of last year, I challenged the Institute of Medicine and the concept of their J-curve that a lot of others have begun reporting about. For the following reason, typically this J-curve begins to uptick at around 100 nanomoles to 150 nanomoles per liter. So the first question you have to ask is, who is maintaining a blood level of 150 nanomoles per liter? This likely is a person that maybe is being treated for vitamin D deficiency. So if that was true, then they would have had whatever chronic illness was associated with vitamin D deficiency and to suggest that because they have now been treated for vitamin D deficiency and they still have the risk for the chronic illness. For example, prostate cancer is a good example, and uh, pancreatic cancer, that indeed they have the risk because they were vitamin D deficient for a long period of time. We actually did a study, and it's going to get published in PLOS 1, probably within the next couple of weeks, where we asked the question... And the U.S. population of over 3 million samples measuring 25-hydroxyvitamin D and asking the question, who is above about 150 to 200 nanomoles per liter? And we have some good evidence that, in fact, more than 50% were likely being treated for vitamin D deficiency. Uh, The other group of people that have very high vitamin D levels, of course, are the Maasai warriors, which you've previously been associated with. Indeed, I understand that you were inducted into their tribe. Is that right? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I actually was out in in Kenya and visited with them. Um, And we've now done another study in uh, African children and found the same thing that was reported by Luxwald, where he found that Maasai warriors and and other African natives that live in the bush, their levels on average are about 100 to 150 nanomoles per liter for 25-hydroxyvitamin D. And we have some data now in African children who are outside all the time, levels about 40 to 50 nanomoles per liter, even though many of them have nutritional deficiencies, but Mm. their exposure to sunlight has helped to preserve their vitamin D status. So what level of vitamin D were you finding in children in African populations? The same as they found in the Maasai warriors, at around 100 to 150 nanomoles per liter. So that's very interesting because I'm just looking at a paper here regarding pregnancy and vitamin D, looking at asthma. It's an Australian study by Jones and Prescott and, and the group. Uh, And what they found is that infants who had levels above 75 nanomoles per litre were at decreased risk of asthma. Is that correct? That's correct. And that's a really, you know, very nice study. Um, It's uh, well done. And, you know, they looked at innate immune responses uh, during the first six months of life. And, um, and, And, you know, very nicely demonstrated that improvement in vitamin D status can definitely have a significant health benefit. So this is really interesting because it's looking at the basically the immune imprinting or the immune priming of the infant immune system. Exactly. And so, yeah, they looked at a variety of factors and showed very nicely that 
one of the interleukins, like interleukin 13, for example, which is associated with increased risk for asthma, that there's an inverse correlation with blood levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D. And so the bottom line was that they felt that the higher blood levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D at six months was associated with um, increased responses for these what are called toll-like receptors, mm -hmm. which play an important role in innate immunity. So with the vitamin D, that's affecting what's called the FOXP3. Is, is that correct? And, and that's interacting with the right. retinol X receptor? to sort of cause a balance? Yeah, there's a whole variety of, of, of fundamental genes that it appears that vitamin D is having some role to play in controlling them. It's really interesting stuff, isn't it? It's amazing. And, um, and, and we'll talk in a minute about a recent study that was published in Journal of Biological Chemistry where they have now looked at the active form of vitamin D regulating glucose metabolism in fat cells. Well, let's talk about that because previously Dr. Jenny Gunton at Westmead Hospital found that there was real issues with diabetic women, a huge deficiency of vitamin D3, and so she supplemented in that group. Tell me about this new paper. So what this new paper is um, suggesting is that uh, it's been suggested that vitamin D supplementation will help lower glycemia in diabetes, but the explanation for it, you know, still remains elusive. Mm. And that this study that was um, performed by GN, G-A-I-N, and colleague um, showed that 125-dihydroxy vitamin D, the active form of vitamin D, yep. uh, upregulates glucose transporter uh, activity by uh, improving translocation and glucose utilization uh, in adipocytes, so in fat cells. And that, of course, is very important because often patients who are obese and develop insulin resistance, um, that it could be that vitamin D can help to fight that. And that's consistent with what the literature has suggested. Is there any evidence to show that vitamin D can also help reduce uh, the inflammatory blockade with regards to leptin? Yeah, there is some evidence for that. We actually had published a paper a couple of years ago looking at um, pre-adipocytes and adipocytes recovered from um, subcutaneous fat and um, mental fat um, from biopsies. And we could show that um, leptin, adiponectin, and several markers for inflammation seem to be regulated by the local production of the active form of vitamin D within the cells. You know, we've talked about this before. Yeah. And in our last conversation, we talked about gestational diabetes and how important it is for pregnant women to be taking an adequate amount of vitamin D because gestational diabetes has been associated with vitamin D deficiency, as has been preeclampsia. So I think you know, that, that there continues to be very good evidence to suggest that improvement of your vitamin D status could reduce your risk for developing type 2 diabetes as well as um, gestational diabetes during pregnancy. So I think also that previously we didn't know about how much to give. And we've shown with the work from Bruce Hollis that 4,000 IU in pregnancy is shown to be safe. I think Jenny Gunton gave 5,000 IU. 
Um, but also now what we're seeing is that children may well require above 75 nanomoles per litre to have adequate immune priming, correct immune priming with vitamin D. So we really need to be looking at the adjustment of the dose to pregnant women and potentially children up. Is that correct? Yeah, it's correct. I mean, there's essentially very little known about how much vitamin D is required for children for mm -hmm. their maximum health. Um, we're, we're now underway studying this to some degree in older children, um, but it's very difficult to be able to do these studies in younger children. Um, there's a major study underway in Boston that I'm participating in where we're, they're giving school children 2,000 units a day and looking at a wide variety of parameters, including their growth spurt, blood pressure, weight, and all, and all kinds of other issues. And we're in the process of analyzing that data now to give us a better insight as to how much vitamin D a child truly needs to satisfy the requirement. Tell me about uh, growing pains and how you would um, suspect that there may be a vitamin D deficiency in children because you've got a couple of really nice handy hints. Yeah, it, it turns out that osteomalacia, which is basically a mineralization defect of the skeleton, can cause throbbing, aching, bone pain. And so typically you think about vitamin D deficiency in children causing rickets, but that usually only occurs in the first few years of life before a child can put an adequate amount of calcium in their skeleton so they don't have the influence of gravity hmm. um, causing any deformation of the bones. But a, a growing child is rapidly growing. If they're vitamin D deficient and they have osteomalacia, they very well could be having aches and pains in their bones and muscles, especially in their hip region. And we found that just increasing vitamin D intake in some children, that a lot of these so-called growing pains resolved. And so um, talking about the hip region, what about when you've got those, you know, the achy shins and the achy knees at night in kids? I, I remember them as a child. Explains that. I mean, um, we know that vitamin D deficiency can cause what are, what are known as pseudo-fractures, or what are called looser zones. It's a classic sign where you have these splits in the cortical bone that is um, horizontal to the bone. Mm -hmm. and, and we can see that it causes a lot of discomfort and pain and often due to vitamin D deficiency. Shin splits, for example, where they have these microfractures uh, can, in fact, uh, be precipitated by vitamin D deficiency. Yeah, and so your treatment for that would be what? What level of vitamin D would you give and, and sunlight exposure? Yeah, I mean, the sunlight exposure, what you need to do is to, to be thoughtful about it. So if you use the app D M I N D E R dot info, it will tell you exactly how long to stay outside and then to go into the shade or to use the sun protection so you don't get a sunburn. I typically recommend, if you know you're going to get a mild sunburn after 30 minutes outside, that arms and legs, abdomen and back, when appropriate, for about maybe 10 minutes, followed by good sun protection. But always protect your face. It's most sun exposed mm. and most sun damped and doesn't provide you with very much vitamin D. Yeah. But we do recommend, based on the endocrine practice guidelines, that children 
um, should be on at least 600 to 1,000 units of vitamin D a day. And from my experience, I think that teenagers should be considered like adults. They should be on at least 1,500 to 2,000 units of vitamin D a day. And that's if in, they're not obese. If they're obese, then that blows out to three to five times that dose, correct? That's correct. And in fact, uh, there was a very nice study done out of Canada that helped to support this concept. The Endocrine Practice Guidelines have recommended this based on limited data, but there's a study up being done now in Calgary by the Pure North Group, and what they're doing is that they're giving large doses of vitamin D to the population at large in Calgary, and that they've been documenting how much vitamin D they're taking. And what was published in PLOS 1 um, late last year, and I co-authored the paper with Dr. Googlers and um, Equor, showed that people could take up to 20,000 units of vitamin D a day and not raise their blood level above about 200 to 250 nanomoles per liter. There was no toxicity. And if you looked at body weight, there it was. 2.5 times more vitamin D to reach the same blood level of 25-hydroxyvitamin D. So it, there's two things there. One is the issue of obviously obesity in our society, which is a separate issue. The, and, and vitamin D may indeed help in at least some of the um, un, unlock some of the blockages in that, some of the inflammatory blockages in the signaling of obesity and hunger. The second one is obviously that the dose has been shown to be extremely safe because we can break down vitamin D the more we get, and particularly in issues where obesity, where we can't use it. All correct. Yep. In fact, it's the what's called a 24-hydroxylase. Uh, that's present in most cells in your body that have a vitamin D receptor, and the major source is probably your kidneys. And so any excess active form of vitamin D or 25-hydroxyvitamin D can be rapidly destroyed by the 24-hydroxylase, and, and it metabolizes it basically to a water-soluble, inactive metabolite. And so can I just uh, maybe ask for a caveat there? So in those people that might have liver disease and kidney or, or kidney disease, then these elegant homeostatic mechanisms of vitamin D control might be out of whack, and so it's worthwhile in these populations to measure their vitamin D levels, correct? For sure. I mean, patients with, with chronic liver failure have malabsorption, and so as a result, they don't absorb vitamin D very well, so they definitely should be followed. For patients that have severe liver dysfunction, they possibly can't adequately make 25-hydroxyvitamin D, so that they need to be carefully followed as well. But yeah. the major issue for liver disease is malabsorption of vitamin D. Oh, Regarding kidney disease, it's a different story because they can't activate vitamin D. But even the international kidney guidelines recommend that all patients, no matter what the level of chronic kidney disease, that they should maintain a blood level of 25-hydroxyvitamin D of greater than 75 nanomoles per liter. So in, in the kidney patients, is it worthwhile supplementing with vitamin D if they can't activate it? Shouldn't they be receiving either the intermediate or indeed um, the 125-dihydroxy um, thing. What we now recognize is that the parathyroid glands, for example, have the ability to convert 25-hydroxyvitamin D to 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. Right. 
So if you raise your blood levels of 25 hydroxy vitamin D, we and others have shown that you can actually decrease the PTH levels independent of other therapies. So the guidelines, both the national guidelines in the United States and the international guidelines for kidney doctors, they all recommend that all patients with kidney failure should be also receiving vitamin D, maintaining blood levels of at least 75 nanomoles per liter for 25 hydroxy vitamin D. And that if they have CKD 4 and 5, for example, where they can't make enough 125 dihydroxy vitamin D, they will benefit by receiving 125 dihydroxy vitamin D or one of its analogs, independent of them definitely still receiving vitamin D. Michael, we've spoken about uh, bone pain in children, but what about myalgia in adults, muscle pain in adults related to low vitamin D levels? There's a very interesting paper by Moore and Levy um, from Wayne State University. Um, I think it was from 2014. Can you comment on that paper, please, and what's the pragmatic or practice points with regards to vitamin D in muscle pain? Sure. I mean, uh, basically, we've always known that vitamin D deficiency uh, increases risk of proximal muscle weakness. We also know that, especially in wintertime, people just feel achy, and they have these global myalgias, and often they think that it's due to um, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, or the physician just throws up their hands because they just don't really know what's going on. And often these patients are suffering from vitamin D deficiency. And this paper, you know, documented very nicely that uh, in their patient population that they had significant improvement in myalgic symptoms uh, by correcting vitamin D deficiency. So wouldn't that also be relevant? I understand there's a few papers looking at vitamin D and, uh, sorry, forgive me, vitamin D deficiency in statin-induced myalgia. Correct? Correct. And so we and others have speculated, but there aren't really any good data out there yet that have clearly demonstrated that association. We're very suspicious that, 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 um, that they're uh, in some way associated. And I find in my patients that are on statins that I will treat them with vitamin D to see whether or not I can reduce their myalgic like symptoms, and in some cases, um, quite successfully, but not in all cases. Yeah. What if somebody had the suspected uh, diagnosis of myasthenia gravis? Would you institute, along with other therapies, their vitamin D trial? Yeah, I don't think there's any question that, you know, it's an autoimmune disease, and we know that um, improving vitamin D status can improve your immune system. I mean, we had demonstrated that uh, a year ago where we gave 2,000 units of vitamin D a day to healthy adults and showed that we could up or down regulate about 291 genes in their white blood cells. So we think that indeed uh, improving vitamin D status for everyone, especially those with uh, autoimmune diseases, uh, can definitely be be beneficial along with the appropriate medications to help in treating these particular disorders. With regards to vitamin D in migraine treatment, where are we now with the evidence? There were some pros and there was a couple of negative studies saying, oh, no, there isn't really an association. 
What's your stance on this? What do you find clinically? Um, clinically, I mean, migraines, you know, are, are often um, can be associated with, you know, significant muscle spasms, especially the muscles in, in the back of the neck that can sometimes precipitate these. Mm-hmm. And we find that um, improving their vitamin D status can help um, give some muscle relaxation. So they have decreased frequency uh, for migraines as well as decreased in the intensity of the migraines. And do you tend to use other therapies with them or do you, do you stick to mainly drug therapy or do you use other nutrients involved in that as well? Right. So, I mean, um, you know, the standard therapy is... Um, um, works reasonably well, um, so we definitely will use that along with uh, treating them for the vitamin D deficiency. Michael, from an endocrinologist's perspective, and I, I understand that you are extremely tightly regulated in what you can and can't prescribe, but what do you say when patients want to use vitam- vitamins and minerals and, and nutrients in their therapy outside of vitamin D, for instance? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of patients that come in, um, you know, bringing in the latest and greatest um, nutrient information. I mean, clearly, adequate calcium, adequate phosphate, adequate vitamin D, um, and, you know, most of the multivitamins, you know, they're all very important for your health. And so I have no problem in recommending a multivitamin supplement. I mean, there is a lot of information out there now and hype about vitamin K2. Mm. And, and it's possible that vitamin K2, you know, may be of some benefit for both your bone health and cardiovascular health. I think more studies need to be done, you know, to be convincing of it. Yeah. But my philosophy has been to my patients, if there's no downside to doing it, and if they want to spend a little bit of money, and there is the possibility that it may have some long-term positive health benefit, then why not do it? Hmm. Do you ever use magnesium at all with migraines? I don't. I mean, the problem is that most magnesium is inside your cells. So Hmm. measuring the blood magnesium level doesn't tell you very much about magnesium status. That's right. What you have to do, actually, is load them with magnesium and get a 24-hour urine magnesium level (laughs) to see if they're deficient. And that mainly occurs in alcoholics because alcohol causes you to lose magnesium into your urine. But most people, if you're on a healthy diet, especially leafy vegetable that's part of your diet, you're getting all the magnesium that you need. Elders may be more prone to magnesium deficiency, but otherwise, I don't think a big deal. Mm. And certainly, no evidence that magnesium helps you absorb calcium. It's just not true. No. So, Michael, we've covered children. We've covered muscle pain. What about things like adrenal stress or indeed post-traumatic stress disorder and vitamin D? Is there actually a clinical link or is it just biochemical, just an association? At the moment, I think that it's mainly an association. I think we need a lot more information before we can link the two. Mm. I mean, vitamin D deficiency is so common, and many of these syndromes are common in, in certain populations that the fact that you see deficiency and you see the issue, does that mean that D deficiency is causing it, or are they just 
related because vitamin D deficiency is very common. Yeah. And I think we just don't know the answer to that. I mean, a good example for me, at least, is is the issue of autism. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's estimated like what one in six hundred children may be affected to some degree with autism, and to kind of imply that you know, in utero vitamin D deficiency or vitamin D deficiency in early childhood kind of precipitated autism, I think, is is a stretch because most children are vitamin D deficient to begin with. Yeah. And autistic children will be indoors more and less likely to be playing outside, less likely to be getting an adequate amount of sun exposure to improve their vitamin D status. So there's no reason not to give autistic children vitamin D, but I'm not sure that vitamin D deficiency causes autism or is a major cause of autism. Yeah, I think it's the old uh, axiom of, of medicine and research is that uh, association does not imply causality. For sure. And of course, that's the major criticism that many have leveled for the vitamin D story. Um, but but one has to argue that there are you know, literally thousands upon thousands of observations now linking vitamin D deficiency, inadequate sun exposure, low blood levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D with many chronic illnesses that I think we have to at least take pause to consider the possibility that the two, in fact, may be related and that there really isn't any reason or downside to be increasing your vitamin D intake for you and all family members, which is what I do for my family. I think the other side of it as well is when you've got an association with causality, that doesn't also imply that you can treat with vitamin D either um, or anything indeed. But um, with regards to vitamin D, if you're vitamin D deficient and you are at increased risk of, let's say, atopic dermatitis, then can you then reverse atopic dermatitis by giving vitamin D? Can I ask for your comment on that one? Yeah, I mean, there is, you know, a recent review on the subject to suggest that that maybe you can help um, in reversing atopic dermatitis, but certainly to think that you could treat atopic dermatitis with vitamin D if you're vitamin D deficient, I think is a stretch. And I think you definitely need appropriate other therapy along with correcting the vitamin D deficiency. I mean, it's possible that the vitamin D deficiency you know, exacerbated the condition. But I don't believe that vitamin D deficiency caused the condition. So, Michael, just recently, uh, the Australian government, for reasons of cost-saving measures, restricted the testing of vitamin D. Uh, Can you comment on that, please? Because I know that you were involved in this. That's correct. I mean, the Institute of Medicine and the Endocrine Practice Guidelines Committee, and I, I chaired that committee with many experts in vitamin D, and we both concluded that we should not do broad screening for 25-hydroxy vitamin D. So, so both of these organizations concur with the Australian um, Health Ministry that you should not be screening everyone, but rather you should be encouraging adequate sun exposure, um, vitamin D supplementation, and increasing food intake that contains vitamin D. And those three measures will more than guarantee that people can have an adequate vitamin D supply without needing to have an expensive test performed. However, the Australian government 
and the Endocrine Society and the IOM all recognize that if you have fat malabsorption syndrome, for example, celiac disease or uh, Crohn's disease or cystic fibrosis, if you're obese, um, if you are on medications like glucocorticoids, antithesium medications, AIDS medications that can destroy vitamin D, all of these types of patients should be screened and followed after they're being treated with vitamin D to be sure that you're correcting the vitamin D deficiency. What about those people that might be institutionalized or those people that for cultural reasons don't get enough vitamin D? Is there, is there cause for screening in this population or just supplement? Yeah, well, so for example, with institutionalized uh, patients, it was well documented over 50 years ago now that if they were on anti-seizure medications, multiple anti-seizure medications, that they needed probably five to up to upwards of 10 times more vitamin D because the medication itself caused significant destruction of the vitamin D. Yep. Also, institutionalized people are often not outside. They don't have a particularly great diet. And so for sure, they need to be supplemented and it's not unreasonable especially if they're on a variety of medications, to be screened for vitamin D deficiency and appropriately treated. Some salient points with regards to immune regulation, with regards to pain, children and lactation as well. Michael Hollick, thank you so much for joining us once again. I know that next time we'll have, again, more papers to discuss. And I just thank you for your clinical insights as well. My pleasure. Have a delightful day. Thanks, Michael. This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.